passage for this sermon is Luke chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I'd like to start tonight, and, and um, might, might do a little bit of this this summer. I want to tell you about the doctoral dissertation that I never wrote. <clears throat> okay? I went to graduate school and uh, University of Tennessee in the history program, and I was going to write my dissertation on urban monasticism, and I was going to trace it back from the beginnings of monasticism up until the 21st century and make a clinching argument about why an urban monastery is a wonderful way to seek the peace of the city today. However, I did not. Um, If I would have, I would have started with St. Benedict. Uh, St. Benedict is an Italian monk from the 5th century. He grew up in a little village called Nursia. Sandy and I got to go visit there some years ago. And and, uh, this is from his little village. If you want to see it later, you can kind of hold it if you want or something like that. It's a a $3 uh, keychain. It's about 40 miles outside of Rome. Benedict went down into Rome, tried to follow Christ in the city, came out of the city after a number of years and said, look, I cannot follow Christ in this city. The church is too corrupt. So he went up, lived in a cave. After three years, met a hermit. The hermit said, come join our monastery. Came, joined the monastery, and after three years, became the leader of the monastery. Eventually uh, started 12 of them, ended his life in a famous monastery called Monte Cassino. Died there, was buried next to his sister Scholastica. Now, you may be thinking, uh, what on earth could a guy that fled the city uh, and lived in a cave and then started monasteries have to say to a church that's trying to seek the peace of the city? Uh, Well, we will get there. We will get there in weeks ahead, I promise, to kind of talk to you about how this monastic movement became a major renewal movement and a justice movement in the city's of, of Europe over the years. But for now, I just want to point out two things. Benedict looked around, and he saw the community was struggling, and so he wrote a, a little book, a little guideline for life in the community. And he said, look, I want you guys to be about two things. The first is, I want you to start a school for the Lord's service. And he gives a lot of instructions about what that school might look like. And the second thing is, I want you to extend hospitality to three groups of people. Any guest that shows up, Christians who show up on pilgrimage, and especially the poor. And what I'm trying to do with you this summer is practice a little thought experiment for our church. I'm asking you to try on this idea of being an urban monastery. And I know that it's a new idea for many of us, and so I'm trying to flesh out what would it look like if we actually lived more that way. If you've been around All Souls for a while, you've heard me talk about this before, but I'm trying to go back and and, and flesh this out a little bit, particularly when it comes to practicing hospitality. So this summer we're asking, what does it look like to practice hospitality to our neighbors, 
especially in the city. And the context of this story is Jesus is at a dinner party, and you know, I, I bet he was not often asked back to dinner parties <laughs> because he would blow them up with uh, certain kind of questions and conversations. And a little bit of background here might be helpful. This was a, it was called a patronage culture, very clear social hierarchy. The way you got up and down was by incurring favor with someone higher. There, was actually, there are actually historians that have done seat charts of dinner parties in the first century. And the way it worked was a typical house would have three U-shaped couches. The most uh, prominent person would sit in the middle, then one to the right, one to the left. And the most powerful person of all of them would sit in the middle couch. And when a party began, there would be sort of scurrying for favor to see who would get to sit by who and who would land at the, at the right couch. And so Jesus is watching all of this happen and just kind of stands up. And he's telling a couple of stories and he essentially rebukes the host and says, Look, when you give a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives, or your neighbors, because they might invite you in return and be repaid. Now, he just upended the entire social system of his culture, because that was very much how patronage culture worked. You would invite the people that you wanted to be invited to in return. You would invite the people that you were close to. You would invite the people who could help you get further up the social ladder. It was very transactional. It was very calculated. You networked so as to improve improve your social capital, your social worth, and that others would like you and it would help you in society. Now, thank God we don't do that. That was a little humor there. Okay. <laughs> I think we do that a lot. Now, Jesus obviously isn't against Christians having Christians over to eat. The Bible is all about fellowship and, and, and breaking bread together and, and all of that. You've got to read these texts in context. I think what he's doing is showing the shadow side of our hospitality. Nothing wrong tonight having dinner with your family. What is wrong, though, is the part, my motive... And hospitality, and that the reason why I seek you out is because of what you can do for me. The reason why I build a relationship with you is because somehow I think that you will then invite me into a relationship with you. I invite you to my wedding because you invited me to your kid's wedding. On and on and on and on. I get you a gift because you got me a gift. I post things on Facebook because I want people to see who I'm hanging out with and who I'm not hanging out with. And maybe if you see me hanging out with this person, maybe I'll get invited to this over there. Jesus is sort of really ruining this dinner party by just putting his finger in the eye of all of this social custom. And he's essentially saying, look, when your relationships are transactional, this has nothing to do with my kingdom. When the reason you had the person over was to get something out of it because they make you feel good. They're interesting. They don't irritate you. They don't bore you. Those are the people that you have in your house. Jesus is saying, there's a whole different table ethic in my kingdom. And then he spells out 
what it is. When you give a dinner party, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, then you'll be blessed because they can't repay you. You'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, who are the blind, the lame, the crippled, the poor? They, they are the people on the margins, the, the people who can't get into LinkedIn, the people who never show up on your Facebook posts, the people who do not ever appear in anybody's Instagram account, the people whose kids cannot get the internship at TVA because their dad does not know the board chairman. These are the people who do not get the jobs at Pilot because their father is in jail and they cannot get the internship because they have to work and they can't afford a summer of an unpaid internship. You get the idea. These are the people that don't get us over. Now, what is the principle embedded in here? Well, there's two clues. One is the way that the ancients thought about eating. Eating at a table was one of the most intimate expressions of, of fellowship. Table fellowship was very, very intimate. And so when you ate with someone, they were your close friend and companion, or you wanted them to be. So this is a picture of intimate, long-term friendship and relationship. The second little clue is in the Greek, there's a different word for invite, and it just means to call. And sometimes it, it is used to call into your presence, to call by your name, to call into the work of God. And so there seems to be a kind of a, a wordplay here where Jesus is saying, instead of always spending time with the people that you like, that you feel good about, that make you feel good, I want you to have some people in your life, in your home, in relationship with you that you would never reach out to on your own. Luke's really rough, isn't he? This is a hard word. Who are you eating with? It's okay to eat with your friends. Is there anybody you eat with, have a relationship with, have a long-term presence with, who's in your home, you've been in their home, who is not, let me just say it, for most of us, middle class, upperly mobile, whatever you want to say it. Do you, do you have, a, have a person like that? Or maybe we could even broaden it beyond that. Just, just someone who God has put in your life that you would not normally have at your table, maybe because it's just that they're a pain in, in the ear and you just would not want to spend an evening with them. Is there anybody? You know, it, this is hard. It's hard, first of all, because our, the structure of our very city, of our very society, works to keep us from eating with people who are different. You can live in Knoxville for 20 years and, and live out west and never realize there is an East Knoxville. You never would have to go there. Why was there all this confusion about Project Grad and all, all, all this kind of angst and, and enmity and, and about building schools out west and, and not having them in the inner city? I believe that the people on the board are good moral people. I think the problem is they never eat with people on the east side. That's the problem. 
If they did, they'd see the world differently. And my friend Daryl Arnold, who preaches here occasionally, the pastor of Overcoming Believers, he said, you, you've got to understand, we were breaking bread with a, with a, with a wonderful board member, and, and the two brothers were trying to explain the difference. And, and Daryl said, and forgive me if I've told this before, but uh, uh, Daryl said, what do you see when you look out of Farragut High School? A horse farm. What do you see when you look out of Austin East? What do you see? You know, if you've been down there. Yeah, funeral home, often with your classmate's corpse rotting in it. Could that maybe affect your SAT prep? Yes. That conversation happened over a Subway sandwich in Daryl's office with a Tony Norman. Tony was profoundly moved. You know, I, I like I get overwhelmed with change in the world. I, I I can almost hardly listen or watch the news anymore. But you can you can touch one person, right? I remember that story. I know preachers tell it all the time. Little boys on the beach, and a storm had come in, and there are all these starfishes. Uh, that's probably not the plural of starfish, is it? All these starfishies, or I don't know, all these star things on the beach. And they're all dying, and so there's this little boy going, throwing one in. And this guy comes and says, you can't save all these starfish, son. And the little boy says, but I can save that one. I think that's the way we've, we've got to approach this from a local, personal perspective. Who are you eating with, friend? Now, the goal of this is not just to shame you into running out of here and finding the first needy person you can find, taking them over to Nama, putting it on your expense account, writing it off as a gift, and then saying, thank you, God, I'm done with that. It really didn't do much. That's not what we're talking about. This is an invitation to discernment. This is an invitation just to step back, look at your life, see if there is anybody in your life, any place in your life, where you are eating with someone who you would normally not eat with because they need to be invited to the table. Tuesday night, we had this amazing meeting in the chapel. Johnson University uh, has now turned the fellows program into a a one-year master's in ethics and leadership. So you enroll in, in the fellows program, you get a master's in ethics and leadership. And they caught wind of something that had happened in our program this year, and they wanted to come video it. That was cute, by the way, that when words got out, the, all the, the women were entirely dolled up, and the men were not. It was very interesting to see the, see the contrast there. They did not seem to care very much about the, the videoing. Well, here's what they'd heard about. So I've told you about this class on uh, race, social justice in the Bible that we taught with, with uh, Chantel and Mary Terry. Three black students, 11 white students. We taught it in the fall and in the spring. And it started so poorly. It was agonizing. We studied the Bible. We studied podcasts. We watched documentaries. We looked at good literature on racial reconciliation. And then we'd try to talk about it. It was the worst experience I've had in a classroom for three months. 
We had a focus group at the end of October. Each black student said, I would never recommend this program to someone else. I'm thinking, this is horrible. Well, then one day, we were watching the documentary 13, and it's about incarceration. And, and uh, one of the statistics is one out of three black men will be in prison. And this lovely uh, black woman, Ashley, just tears up, says, I got three brothers. And you could look around the room at the white students, and for the first time you could see, that's not a number. That's her brother. And then the next week, uh, Aaliyah just pouring out her heart. We'd read something, and she was talking about how she'd experienced something, and it was very painful, and just everything was silent. And the white students just sat in their chairs. And finally, she raised her voice. She said, look, you guys, I tell you what's going on in me, and you just sit there. Do you know how alone I feel in this room? And finally, one of the white students said, I don't know what to say because anytime I say anything in this conversation, I'm perceived as racist. I don't know where to go with this. And that broke open this powerful conversation about how do we hold space where we can talk about these things. Uh, Thomas, this wonderful young black man, became close friends with, we'll we'll call her Noelle, and and they're sitting out in Market Square in a lovely uh, night, and they'd become very close, and Noelle was sharing, and Noelle begins to weep about something they were talking about, and and Thomas looks over her shoulder. I'm just telling you what, what I've seen. Thomas looks over his shoulder. There are three black, uh, there's three police officers. And Thomas says, you've got to, Thomas says, you've got to stop crying. You've got to stop crying. We've got to get out of here. Because he knew the optic of a black man with a white woman in tears could get him into, get him into trouble. And these students came back week after week to talk about this, to talk about this, to talk about this. And now their love for each other is so profound. I've never seen anything like it in my entire life. A bunch of the boys came and helped Aaliyah move in last week. They're calling each other. They're texting each other. They've got each other's backs. And so the, the interviewer asked him for the video. He said, well, what, what happened? How, how did this happen? And, and they all said, essentially, we were forced to eat together. We, we couldn't escape. And they did. Ten months. Every day. Over the table. And uh, enemies became friends. I don't know what that looks like for you. I don't know what that looks like for us. I know that the only times in my life when I get even close to touching gospel justice is a long-term relationship where he's in my home and I'm in his. Just tell you one last story. So I try to keep you up to date. And this young guy, Jamontre, is just wonderful. And 
I've been with him now six years. He's on our swim team, and he has some really serious academic problems. He got into Emerald Academy, and uh, he's in his second year there. He's in his seventh grade, and he's got, like, suspended, like, four times, and I keep waiting for the call, you know, that he's kicked out. And so I get this phone call from him two weeks ago, and he says, Coach Doug, um, can you take me out to eat? i got to talk to you about my grades. I thought, oh, no. They finally kicked him out. Well, he always likes to go to Subway. I don't know why. He likes the, the foot-long tuna with bacon. God forbid. But that's what, I mean, that's, there ought to be a law against the foot-long tuna with bacon. But he, you know, so we're sitting there eating, and I said, all right, buddy, um, what, what, do you, what do you want to say about your grades? And he, he looks, and he says, I forgot to bring my report card. And I said, okay, well, it's all right. What do you want to tell me? And he, he, he smiled. He says, I'm better than 74% of all the other 7th graders in math. And he says, I'm in the advanced class in 8th grade. And my teacher gave me an app from the Khan Academy. I just can't tell you how shocking of all the things I was expecting to hear from Jamantre that he had an app from the Khan Academy was not one of them. And it happened over a foot-long tuna with bacon. <laughs> We've had so many of those over the years. So I don't know what this series is saying to you. I don't want you to go out here on a guilt trip. I don't want you to think it has to look any particular way. But you've got to be doing this with somebody or you're not following Christ. I don't want to tell you what it has to look like. But if all your social capital is invested transactionally in people who pay you back, you are not living faithfully for Jesus Christ. Just, just, to, just to end, you know it is Father's Day, and somebody pointed out to me earlier, this is such a beautiful picture of the Father's heart. Isn't it what a true father's heart is for his sons and daughters? He doesn't just care about the son or the daughter that gets all A's or does everything right. He loves the broken, the depressed, the son that can't get the job, the daughter that's gone through the divorce. He wants them all at the table, as Trevetta said. So let's remember that tonight as we come to our table.